I could just keep listening to this. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Happy Media New Year. We are the day after Labor Day here, and so everything gets started. And we have a landmark episode on our hands here with episode number 150 of the Northern Miner podcast. That's 150 weeks of podcasting. We're going on three years here, and it was started by our previous Western editor, Matt Keevil, and he eventually brought on Leslie Stokes, who is also a previous reporter at the Northern Miner, and they did the podcast together, and uh, they both actually ended up working for mining companies later. Matt moved on to Adak Resources, where he's a VP, I believe, of communications, and we see him every so often at big mining events. And Leslie, uh, she went on, I believe, to Freeport McMorrin, and she seems to be doing quite well there. I see little updates on LinkedIn. And yeah, after that, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief, took it over, and he did a great job, and really built up the podcast to a whole other level. And yeah, and here I am uh, after John left. And so it's great to be with such esteemed company. It's a privilege uh, to do this. So yeah, we've got a lot going on here as usual. You can find us online at northernminer.com. Uh, we're also available on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at the Northern Miner and also on Facebook and LinkedIn. And don't forget YouTube, the up-and-coming YouTube. Uh, it's huge, but you just wait. We think YouTube's gonna get even bigger. It's gonna, I think it's gonna become the social network. That's my little prediction for the mining crowd here. And uh, yeah, so I hope you like our new music. It's by Brett Van Donzel, and the, he is with Incompetech.com, and uh, We've gotten all our music from Incompetech, so let's just give them a little plug. Uh, because they've been doing, they just release outstanding musical content uh, for podcasts like this. And uh, yeah, like I, I, as I was saying, I could just keep listening to this and I look forward, uh, look forward to our next musical break, which is coming up. So uh, yeah, anyways, so we thought we'd change it up for episode number 150. And so here it is. And so yeah, just big thank you to Brett Van Donzel and Incompetech. media, uh, you might see that we have just wrapped up the Northern Miner Scholarship. And uh, yeah, that was the deadline was August 31st. We mentioned it last show. And the name of the scholarship is the Northern Miner Future of Mining Scholarship, where we provide $5,000 uh, to an individual with a vision for the future. So yeah, Young Mining Professionals has collected all your submissions, and they said they got quite a bit. They put out a tweet yesterday 
Uh, YMP scholarship submissions are closed, overwhelmed and thrilled by the sheer number of applicants. What does it mean? Is interest in mining up or student debt staggering? Likely both, but continued support is needed from industry to keep filling the pipeline with talent. Okay, so it's very exciting. So let me just check here. I think the 10 recipients will be announced by September 30th, 2019. So all you people who submitted, you will find out in a month. So, and we will definitely post that information on the podcast. Also on social media, we have uh, Diane Garrett, who is a new addition to our TNM Leaders series. And she is the president and CEO of Nickel Platinum, and she shares business and personal success knowledge she's gained through more than 20 years of senior management in the field of natural resources. So we highly recommend that. It's another great reason to subscribe to the Northern Miner and if you, uh, we, we have a ton of these things coming out, so stay tuned. We're just getting warmed up. And if you want to see all of them, just go to the top of our website. You'll see a little subscribe button, subscriptions. And uh, yeah, you can get a subscription and you can get access to all this. And yeah, if you want to be, you know, if you're a mining person and you want to be in the higher ranks of these mining companies, you can't really do much better than this kind of advice. You know, to be a great executive is not just about work it's you have judgment and judgment means it goes across your entire life it's like someone it's like a guest coming into your classroom and giving a quick special little talk a bite-sized talk about all the most important things in their lives and you know values and goals and how to just organize yourself so tnm leaders that's uh, at northernminer.com slash tnm leaders and also, one last thing, we have the Progressive Mind Forum, which is coming up in mid-October. And let's just see here. If you go to our website and you click on Events, and then you go to 2019 Progressive Mind Forum, you'll see we have uh, featured speakers, uh, such as Tony Makuk, President and CEO of Kirkland Lake Gold, and Stephen DeJong from Verify, George Hemingway is coming back from the Stratalist Group. He's the head of innovation practice. And yeah, this is, once again, we're gonna hold it at the Mars Discovery District. And yeah, it was a really cool location to hold this. There are great speakers and there are panels on battery metals, on AI, on big data, and ESG. ESG refers to environmental, social, and governance. Yeah, generally this is used to evaluate uh, corporate behavior and just to make sure, you know, it's becoming a more important thing, ESG, in, uh, in 2019. You know, like it's, it's not the 1980s anymore, right? So, so anyway, so a lot of interesting things. There are sponsorship opportunities that are still available. If you like, just go to our contact page. You can find our sales guys and you can talk to either Michael or Joe and they'll help you out. So yeah, lots of opportunities there and very exciting. Something, uh, so that's just right around the corner. And turning to the website, we have a new story on Rubicon Minerals, I, one of our most popular companies to write about. I did a search on Rubicon and Phoenix and I came up with 50 results uh, with the, that relate to Rubicon and Phoenix, not just sort of random uh, results. These are stories on Rubicon and Phoenix. It's Kind of hard to believe, but there you are. And so today's story, it sounds like things are turning around at Rubicon. They, they went through a very tough period in 2015. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, but 
First of all, let's just look at the article. Trish Saywell, our acting editor-in-chief, she summed it up quite nicely. And here it is. Quote, trial mining of Phoenix's F2 gold deposit was called off in late 2015, following the first gold pour, when the company's previous management team ran into problems reconciling grades and realized the geology was much more complex than they had anticipated. Continuing on, Rubicon's current president and CEO, George Ogilvie, stepped into the breach in December 2016, restructured the company and completed a successful test trial mining and 35,000 ton bulk sample processing program last year. So it sounds like they're turning things around there, but it's quite something. Like if you look at some of these older headlines and I'm just going back two pages, uh, you know, June 19th, 2007, Rubicon up 10% on Phoenix drilling. Uh, so if anybody tells you starting a mining company is easy, just do a, just do a search on Phoenix and Rubicon. High-grade gold intercepts in May 2008 at Rubicon's Phoenix. September 2008, Rubicon rises on Phoenix results. And then we have some drilling, intercepts more high-grade into 2010, ready for a bulk sample in 2010. 2012, Rubicon prepares to defend Phoenix in court and they ran into some issues with the Wabowskang First Nation. 2014, Rubicon keeps Phoenix on course. 2014, Phoenix in Red Lake, Rubicon says development risk is, quote, behind us. And then things get really bad, actually. Uh, actually, well, first they reach a settlement with the Wabowskang First Nation, and then they begin new drill programs. They advance Phoenix into 2015. And then they halt trial mining at Phoenix in November 2015. And then we have an article in March 2016, Rubicon's Phoenix unlikely to rise again. And then following day, we have a CEO interview, and I believe it was with the interim CEO uh, after the previous CEO resigned. Rubicon's Winship discusses Phoenix error. And 2017, can Rubicon's Phoenix rise from the ashes? They start exploring again. They add a resource, test mining. Uh, these are all different articles. So it's quite something. And now we're back to optimism on Phoenix studies. So one of the things, my favorite quotes that I learned in university studying ancient philosophy was Heraclitus. The sun is new each day. And the sun is new each day at, at Rubicon. Uh, things are always in flux and changing. So we wish them the best. Uh, hopefully things turn around for them. And it's, uh, yeah, so, and hopefully it's for real this time. And so they're quite excited and they see opportunity at Phoenix. So that's right at the top of the page, our headline. Also on the website, we have our Mexico special. And you can find that at the bottom left of the homepage. And included in that special is a Mexico snapshot, precious metals from coast to coast. And this is really just a survey of some of the, of what's going on in Mexico uh, on the precious metals front. Uh, sometimes it's, we can't cover everything. And then a lot of these companies are, some are small, some are big. So these little surveys are really interesting. It's just a little update on, you know, what people are up to. And so you have Exelon Resources, Impact Silver, Lee Gold Mining, McEwen Mining, uh, Mexican Gold, and Monera Alamos, Sierra Metals, Southern Silver Exploration. And yeah, so you can read all about what they're up to in that special. It's a nice little summary, a few paragraphs, three paragraphs each about. 
Also on the website, we have a site visit, and this is from Tom as a party, and he is a contributor to the Northern Miner, and he's talking about Coro mining, and the headline is Coro dusts off new copper find, and they want to build Chile's newest copper mine, and yeah, you can read all about that. That was the headline of our paper this week. Yeah, and we have some beautiful pictures by Tom as a party as well. And uh, yeah, you can learn all about that project. It's, it's quite interesting when you get into the story, sounds like they have their financing well taken care of. Uh, there's a little paragraph in here. Key to Coro's success had been the financial backing of two UK-based private equity firms, which together hold 70% of the company's shares. Greenstone Resources, which owns almost 56%, first got behind the company in 2015, and Tembo Capital joined in last year's capital raising and now owns 15.6%. And it continues, their long-term investment has allowed Coro to skip the financing difficulties that hobble most mining juniors. Finally, there's a quote here. The good thing with these funds is that they always have money available to keep injecting money into the project. Well, if you're a junior miner or you're a startup, you got to love those kind of investors, or those kind of backers. That means they believe in you. Yeah, so you can see our latest site visit on the homepage, uh, which was also, again, our headline to this week's paper, Coro dusts off new copper find. A live site visit by Tom as a party in Chile. And finally, on the website, we have a couple of financings. Uh, you have Osisco Gold Royalties is buying into Sable Resources. They're going to put about $2 million for about 10% of Sable's companies, and they're getting 16 million shares at $0.13 cents a piece. 12% premium on their 30-day volume-weighted average price. And as well, we have Horizonte, which also rose on a financing from Orion Mine Finance, and they're giving $25 million in exchange for a royalty of 2.25% on Horizonte's Araguaia project in Brazil, which is one of the largest undeveloped ferro-nickel projects in the world. And yeah, nickel prices... It's very interesting what's going on with nickel prices as copper is at 52-week lows and nickel is getting higher. And that means, what this means is it's time for metal prices. So let's take a look at metal prices. So turning to metal prices, on September 3rd, which is Tuesday today, gold is at $1,530.90. So it's basically hovering in above $1,500. Silver is coming out quite strong at $18.51 per ounce. Platinum is at $934.95 per ounce. Palladium is at $1,536.34 per ounce. Copper continues to hover near its 52-week lows of $2.53. So yeah, Dr. Copper is reflecting the global economic slowdown that some uh, analysts are discussing. Crude oil is slightly higher at $61.13, a little higher than last week. Aluminum is at $0.78 cents per pound. Lead is at $0.92 cents per pound, and nickel is at $8.10 per pound. So nickel continues to perform strongly. 
And so a very interesting thing seems to be going on in the nickel market. Uh, tin is at $7.17 per pound. Cobalt is at $14.29 per pound. And zinc is at $1.02 per pound. Coming up, we have a really interesting interview that Acting Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell does with Rory Johnson of Scotiabank, and they talk commodities, and it's very interesting to hear Rory's view on things. Um, That will come up right after a little bit more of this wonderful new music that we got here from Brett Van Donzel through Incompetech.com. And uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's just listen to a little bit more of this, and then over to Trish Saywell. Hi, Rory. Thanks for joining our podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Trish. It's good to talk to you. Um, before we jump into your metal price forecasts, can we start with your view on the global economy? I and mean, we're seeing signs of uh, slowdown in some countries, and many economists are warning about inverted yield curves and the risk of recession and so forth. Then, of course, we have the rising uncertainty stemming from Trump's trade war with China and the U.S. president's uh, increasingly erratic behavior, in my opinion. Uh, what, what do you think is going on and what's the impact going to be? So as you very eloquently outlined, the global economic outlook continues to deteriorate. And most of this slowdown is solely due to policy risks emanating from the White House. The trade war is the most acute example of this. On the issue of the trade war, we at Scotiabank Economics have been taking a relatively optimistic view of the trade war for the last couple of months, believing that cooler heads would prevail, that rationality would win the day, and that both sides would kind of come to an agreement, particularly in the United States, as you know, the final you know, ramping up of these tariffs are predominantly falling on consumer imports, things that are going to hit consumer and voter pocketbooks heading into the Christmas season. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, this has obviously not been the case, and we're beginning to err on the side of pessimism now, given that both sides in Washington and Beijing have shown no real appetite for de-escalating the tensions at all. And because of this, there are already a couple soft spots in the global economy. Obviously, China was deleveraging some of the debt buildup, so that was slowing things down. Uh, and the trade war has harmed or, or hampered some of the prospects of some you know, heavily export-oriented economies like South Korea and Hong Kong and, and most notably in Europe, Germany. So all of these countries are experiencing other economic drag. At this stage, it, it just doesn't seem like there's going to ever be any de-escalation between Washington and Beijing. And now our, our base case is that the trade war exi- you know, continues in its current severity or potentially even worsens. Uh, straight through to the next U.S. presidential election in 2020. It's interesting. I mean, even last week, Trump called the U.S. Fed chairman uh, Jerome Powell an enemy of the people. I mean, it's just, uh, it's getting a bit crazy. We are certainly in uncharted territory on many issues, and markets are obviously taking this, you know, taking a bit of a risk-off position and disposition towards the market. I mean, oil prices, mid-50s, they're a bit insulated from all of this demand concerns because there are some supply concerns there for oil as well. But I think if you look at the two, what I would generally consider the two best barometers of of the market's faith in the global economy, uh, gold and copper, 
Uh, copper's trading at less than 255 a pound this morning. Gold is over 1540 this morning. So both of those metals are pointing clearly in directions that the market expects demand conditions to remain very weak and potentially worsen. You mentioned the, inver- the yield curve inversion uh, earlier in your introduction, and, and I think that's something else that well, we don't think that the yield curve has quite the same level, you know, recessionary forecasting efficacy that it once did because rates are just so low generally and you have a couple other things happening on the curve. But I do think that it provides a very solid anchor, uh, one event check mark, if you will, for bears in the market to kind of use that and leverage those headlines to just bring markets further down. And, and we've seen that across the board in, in equities and all the industrial commodities have been waning as well. Using uh, interest rate cuts only can go so far, right? Agreed. We only started lifting interest rates, you know, a couple months ago, a couple quarters ago, call it. So, you know, we don't have a ton of room to cut. We now do expect, you know, a series of cuts from the U.S. Federal Reserve. Uh, we now expect the Bank of Canada to cut as well by 50 basis points through through 2020. So, you know, central banks, which had been lifting and tightening interest rate and monetary policy, in order to slow down what, what we believe were many economies that were starting to running a bit warm. You know, we started thinking that inflation would start to creep up. Now, you know, you've had the central banks, you know, flip kind of a 180, and now they're, most of the communication is discussing external trade risks. You know, they're discussing insurance against further trade deterioration, et cetera. So if we look at the Bank of Canada as a great example of this, We actually believe the Canadian economy remains relatively robust, but with Australian Central Bank and the New Zealand Central Bank and other banks starting to, you know, outside of the core, starting to tilt towards this language of insurance against further trade risks, I think that we now believe that the Bank of Canada is going to follow suit with that kind of global central bank tide, but we think that the Bank of Canada is only going to be cutting because of external risks, despite the fact that the domestic economy still seems relatively strong. What about in Europe? I mean, we're seeing signs in Germany of a slowdown, too. That's quite worrying. Yeah, so Germany, obviously, it's it's always been the industrial powerhouse of Europe. Slowing in Germany is particularly concerning, but I think one thing that we can, you know, uh, take a little bit of solace in is that Germany is also one of the most trade-exposed of the economies in Germany, which overall Europe is a little bit less trade-exposed than Germany is itself. So I think that much as most of the risks we're seeing are on the trade file, we would expect those types of risks to disproportionately affect Germany. Whereas on the flip side, the French economy, which has traditionally underperformed the German economy in terms of growth, is actually now, uh, you know, seeing a bit of a, uh, getting a bit of a second wind. There's been some stimulus there last year. It's also less trade-exposed than Germany and has a more insular economy, uh, which is actually insulating it from some of these trade risks. So I think that, you know, Europe has definitely, you know, weakened. I think all global economies have weakened slightly over the past year. And this is mainly on uncertainty. People just don't know what the, the future is going to look like. So they're hesitant to put, you know, capital investment in the ground in new capacity. Uh, but I do think that, that, that Europe is weaker, but it's not, you know, it's not in a crisis at this stage. I mean, I think that, that Germany is able to kind of recover uh, from a couple of quarters potentially of negative growth without too much hardship. But I do think that, you know, Germany can be seen as the bellwether within Europe as, you know, a, you know confirming that, that hard times on the trade side. And China's hard to read, but what's your view on China's economy at a deeper level? The challenge with China right now and looking at the Chinese economy is disentangling what is happening, you know, what degree of the slowdown is just 
this continued story we've been seeing in China for the better part of a half decade now, rebalancing growth from investment towards consumer uh, consumption, trying to deleverage the economy that had become especially overdebted on the corporate side. You know, this is the result of large expansionary fiscal measures, both in the, you know, 2008-2009 recession, but also more recently in, in the 2016, what I'll call the, a, a little bit of a industrial mini dip globally, that Beijing also pushed a lot of money into, into its economy, uh, really incentivized more lending. So there's a lot of debt that's been built up in China, and there's now efforts for financial stability reasons to kind of ratchet that debt backwards. That's obviously going to have a bit of a breaking effect on growth, particularly in heavier industries that commodities feed into as feedstocks. So it's hard to disentangle that from what we do know are going to additionally be, you know, um, negative effects from the ongoing trade war. But we think that at this stage, while the trade war is certainly not helping, it's definitely further hampering Chinese growth prospects and thus, you know, materials and commodities demand. You know, there's this other side, this kind of structural deleveraging uh, story in China that I still think has larger, both in terms of, you know, the size of the impact and also the duration of the impact. Okay, well, let's move then to your, your forecasts for, well, let's start with precious metals and then move to the base metals. Yeah, so, you know, in terms of gold prices, we do expect generally gold prices to stay around current levels for most of the rest of, of this year and then gradually start declining into 2020. That said, obviously, um, the, the trajectory of recent central bank moves is quite bullish for gold. So if these continue and if we continue to see looser and looser monetary policy and, you know, heaven forbid, if things get worse, then we start to see, you know, some of the major economies engage in another bout of, say, quantitative easing, that would be very, very good for gold. And we would need to lift our forecast from there. But I, at this stage, we still see gold averaging about $1,350 an ounce in 2020. But currently, we're trading almost $200, you know, an ounce above that. So for gold, most of the risks right now are on the upside of our current forecast. Similar to silver, silver, you know, has been a bit of a laggard for a while now, and we've seen silver uh, catch a bit of a boost as well, trading at about eight, over $18 an ounce from less than 15 you know, back in May. Gold as well was also trading at less than $1,300 an ounce back in May. So, so the rally over the last couple of months has been quite acute. So what about copper, though? Copper, I mean, in the flip side, if the risks right now are to the upside of our precious metals forecast, the industrial metals, copper, iron ore, et cetera, most of those risks are going to be to the downside because of this, you know, uh, progressively worsening, you know, global economic backdrop. So copper price is currently trading at about $2.55 a pound versus our forecast for next year, about $3. So as, you know, even mid-April of this year, we were still trading at just shy of $3 a pound. And that's kind of where we thought it was going to be and generally trend a bit higher into 2020. But the sentiment in the market has obviously gone entirely the other way and, and pulled us down to what I think in most models would, would consider relatively, you know, crisis global economic growth levels for, for copper at present. So we do think the risk to our $3 call for 2020 is to the downside, but we still think that copper's fundamentals are still more promising. You know, it's, we still do think that barring some kind of dramatic slowdown in the, you know, even more than we're expecting right now in the Chinese economy, that copper should begin to rebalance on a fundamental level over the next year or two. But given that, you know, Dr. Copper is often considered the, glo you know, the weather vane of the global economy and a lot of macro theses, you know, from market participants are channeled through copper contracts. 
And because everyone is so bearish on the global economy right now, copper is having a hard go of it. Same as zinc. We we did expect zinc prices to fall, but they've fallen a bit further than we expected. You know, as of uh, yeah, as of our last forecast, we were talking about a dollar twenty a pound in 2020, and we're just trading above a dollar, but a, a buck uh, and three cents a pound uh, this morning. You know, that's down from more than 135 a pound in April. So there have been big moves across all of these commodities. And, you know, that's this, you know the volatility is making uh, pinning down a forecast right now very, very difficult. One slight bit of, of interesting positive news in, in the base metal complex is, is the, the only metal that's, that's seemingly able to has been able to push past these these macro and demand side concerns has been nickel, which is, you know, from June, trading at just about five and a half bucks a pound is now seven and a quarter uh, a pound, uh, and that's mainly despite the fact that the uh, that the trade risks are weighing, and you know nickel is mostly used in stainless steel, which is something that's going to be hampered. Uh, the industry is going to be hampered by the trade war for sure. But you know you have the EV narrative, which while we don't think is a fundamentally driven story right now, definitely helping sentiment, and more acutely. On the supply side, there's now the Indonesian government has announced that they're going to be accelerating a ban on the export of raw materials uh, to, the begin- to the end of this year versus when they were initially planning it in 2022. So the market right now is pricing in these large, sizable potential supply disruptions. We've obviously seen, you know, over the last couple of years, nickel trade quite a lot around, you know, various either uh, export controls or or supply disruptions in Indonesia and the Philippines. I think this is this is another one of those episodes. So at seven and a quarter a pound, I think the risks to to current prices on nickel are to the downside. We're expecting six dollars a pound for next year. So I think that we're probably going to come down from seven twenty five today as some of that as some of that uh, disruption is uh, digested by the market. And given that they've given that the Indonesians have also built up a lot of domestic processing capacity, I also think that this export control is going to be less disruptive fundamentally of the market than previous episodes. Hmm. In terms of the electric vehicle uh, metals, do you look at cobalt at all? We look at cobalt to a degree, but we don't have an official forecast on cobalt. It's something that's covered in relation to the EV narrative, but we don't have a price target at this time. Okay. Um, one thing I would say about the EV story more broadly is that while I think it at this stage it's not a question of you know if we see a, a breakout in EV sales, but when. This is another thing potentially that could be you know delayed or pushed back in the forecast by a global slowdown because. It's easier to see market penetration of new technologies in boom times, and it's going to be harder to see those in downtime. So I think uh, we're going to see a lot of changes in sentiment around that EV narrative going forward. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but can we just end on on iron ore? Yeah, absolutely. So iron ore is, is obviously been a, a big story in terms of disruptions in Brazil. As of this morning, we're trading at just north of $80 a ton. Uh, that's down from more than 110 in July uh, and around where we were trading, you know, give or take in May. So from May to today, we've risen by $30, $35 a ton, almost 50%, and then come back down. So on iron ore, this is mainly a story of iron ore's narrative 
for a very, very long time has been it's a generally declining or flatlining demand market, and you have a lot of new, high-quality, lower-cost supply coming onto the market, particularly onto the seaborne market, from Brazil and Australia. So what you needed to see in the market in the pricing was for those prices to fall from, you know, 80 or, you know, earlier uh, a couple months ago, $100, well down to below $60 a ton uh, in order to balance that market, in order to push out, you know, less efficient, higher cost producers, mainly in China. So this is what was going on. And then you had the tailings dam failures in Brazil that caused a large portion of that of that country's um, productive capacity to at least be temporarily idled. Some of those restrictions are now being loosened. We're starting to see that or re-enter the market. So while there was a structural shift in the market, so we're no longer expecting around $60 a ton, but now we're expecting more, you know, in 2020, we're expecting $72 a ton for 60 for 63% fines. And I think that's something that's going to continue on that track. Metallurgical coal, obviously connected to that same market because of the steel complex, something else that has fallen off, you know, quite quickly and in large part because of, of trade concerns as well. There's obviously concerns about industrial capacity, industrial throughput in China, and this is going to weigh on that entire complex. So, you know, a combination of you know, trade weight in, in the entire steel complex, you know, and, and then accentuated with, with very, very rapid fall-offs in iron ore prices, given, uh, you know, the market digesting new headlines coming across about, you know, the various openings and closings of uh, iron ore mines in Brazil. Well, okay, thanks, Rory. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you, and you've given us a lot of food for thought. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Thanks, Rory. Talk to you later. And that does it for this episode of The Northern Miner, episode number 150. And we'd like to thank you for being a part of it. And we'd like to thank you for being a part of it every week. And if you would like to help us out and help the podcast, you can give it a review in the Apple directory, which helps enormously. Or you can like, subscribe, or share it online, or even tell your friends about it. All these things help raise the profile of the podcast. And that's all for now. Until next week, take care.